0: This episode is sponsored by Henderson's Hearth.
1: You know, it's clear that Amy over at Henderson's Hearth puts so much heart into the ingredients in her creations. They're healthy, easy to prepare, things like soups, bread mixes, jams, and just like Sam Hewn, steeped in Celtic tradition. The ingredients are either grown by her or acquired locally and prepared in small batches.
0: One of the products that caught my eye early on was the orange ginger marmalade. It reminded me so much of growing up with the Paddington Bear series that I knew I had to order it. If you've ever wanted to know the secret to talking bears, their orange marmalade is exactly what I imagine is worth keeping an emergency sandwich under your hat for. And while I don't have a hat that could hold a marmalade sandwich, I can put some on a delicious slice of their Irish brown bread. And what do you know? With their bread mix, I made it myself. And that pairing is just so hearty.
1: Oh, that was punny.
0: <laughs> no, that was good for the soul. Just like their soup mixes.
1: Oh, uh, no, you did it again.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Actually, though, I can totally vouch for this because the soups are so delicious. I tried the beef and barley, which was hearty in the Henderson soup mix, which is one I've never even heard of before. Um, it was so good. It's their take on a Scottish recipe with lentils, brown rice, split peas, and barley. And all of their things are perfect for any gathering, including the one you have alone with your cat in a good book by the fire. Oh, and did I mention the mulled cider spices?
0: Oh, so good. oh my mm. gosh. Pretty much all the items at Henderson's Hearth are vegetarian friendly, and so many are vegan friendly, too. So thank you, Henderson's Hearth. Hello, and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we celebrate romanticism through many creative outlets and passionate people doing some amazing things. Hello, I'm an archaeological wonder. Hi, my name's Trey. I uh, find me at, at Orphie Tunes on so most social media outlets. And I'm joined by my co-host, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hello. Um,
1: today, I am agricultural achievements. <gasps>
0: yes, we love agricultural achievements. I knew you. Um, I
1: knew you'd get that.
0: um before we dive into tonight's episode uh we would like to give a special shout out to our longest subscriber for the podcast channel uh can we please get some love for our 13 month subscriber cause hi cause we love you
1: yay (laughs) cause thank you for being here for 13 months and plus however many days 56 yes. episodes or weeks or something like that yes yay
0: uh but we are super super happy to have you back with us and we're super happy to have all of our audience members including the cat who's currently meowing in the background uh... that's
1: mine yeah sorry
0: <laughs> no worries um emily would you like to introduce our fantastic guest for the evening
1: i would tonight we're chatting with someone whose voice you might recognize Uh, Saying he is a gemologist and a university professor feels rather simple because he's also like a top expert on geological and environmental sciences, stone and architectural restoration, and cultural heritage management. You might know him from Nat Geo, Smithsonian, PBS Nova, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, Naviteans and stone golems, Tom Paradise.
2: (laughs) Hi, everyone good to have you here
1: yay thank you for coming this is very exciting
2: oh me too <laughs> so- <laughs> <laughs>
1: sorry i'm trying to grab my cat at the same time She's
0: <laughs> see it's That'd this thing on literally every single episode where i'm anticipating that emily's gonna ask a question then i'm ready to ask a question mm-hmm. and then we both just wind up doing this it's a bit um one thing that we kind of want to start off doing uh, is just ask, um, you know, you have such an extensive, extensive background to you. Um, one of the things that we, when we were doing our research, was we found out that when you were 23 years old, you got called to go to Jordan. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that and what made you say yes?
2: Um, it was, um, I people often ask me why I like, ruined and buildings falling apart and i think a lot of it had to do with growing up with an italian mother and being dragged around to see these things as a kid and always wondered who lived there who was in these buildings who built them what happened here what did they eat and so i had a um, an opportunity when i was young to go to the middle east and i always loved it and then a couple years later i was actually asked to visit petra specifically for the filming of a very large movie famous movie that made petra kind of you know put it where it is now right and i really didn't know much about it and all of a sudden i'm behind the scenes and i'm kind of making sure no one wrecks anything and that was the beginning And I've worked over there now. This would be my 34th year this summer.
3: It's
1: crazy.
2: Never looked back. Yeah.
1: But you actually like moved there. You lived there.
2: Yeah. um, I lived there off and on for three years. um, Thanks to the American Fulbright program. In the old days, they would send you overseas for years at a time. Now, it's only kind of a year program. But I'm really lucky to have been awarded a Fulbright. And I just picked up and moved to Jordan. And it was great. I lived in Amman and kind of commuted to Petra and then lived in Petra and commuted to Amman. It was just, you know, it was great. It was that time in my life, you know, before there are kids and before you have, you know, other kind of commitments, it was the best. It was the best. And Jordan is just one of these countries that it's just so welcoming, so comfortable, so easy. Right. Mm -hmm. The food is the foods, you know, there's no surprises.
1: I was Um, going to ask that, like, I don't know anything about the food there.
2: It's I mean, I love it. Growing up again with in an Italian and French family, the food wasn't that far. I mean, some of the things we already know, like you can imagine the falafel, you know, and shawarmas and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. That's really (laughs) sort of, you know, fast food in Jordan. Okay. And then you have they cook with a lot of rice, they cook with lamb, they cook with things that, you know, Italians do anyway. So, I loved it. I was just utterly surprised how friendly everybody was right off. I mean, like in an Italian family, you know, you know who's your friend and who's not, right? And right. I felt the same way in Jordan. I could tell that these were family. This this was great. That's awesome.
1: Did, did you have anything that surprised you going over there? Did you have any like preconceived anything that was like totally different when you got there?
2: Or? Yeah, especially because the first couple of months that I got there, I, maybe the first month or so, I was living in Amman, Jordan, the capital. And it's, it's a big city. So I was expecting the Bedouins and the camels and the goat tents. You know, and, and people eating with a fire in their house. And and so it kind of made me laugh when I go to Amman, that it's a big city with boulevards and, you know, hotels. And so I went, oh, yeah, this is funny. You know, I, I had all these preconceived ideas about Bedouins and camels and tents. And then I moved to, to Petra, which is about a three-hour drive easily from Amman. And there they were. Bedouins and camels and goat-haired (laughs) tents, everything. So I had undermined my own, you know, perception. It's like, oh, God, yeah, I really did believe there were going to be, you know, guys with turbans, you know, riding camels in Amman. And then, of course, I go down south to Petra, and there it is. The Bedouins make a very good living raising camels and giving camel rides to tourists. And so what was my 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 kind of preconceived notion ended up to be true, but in different parts of the country, you know, Hmm. because, you know, you go from a big city, any place, and then you go into the country and it really does change. Right. But, and that's, I think what made the country so wonderful to work in is you have that balance of, you have a city that, you know, every so often I realized I'd be staying with friends that needed a microwave and I'd drive a couple hours to the city and go to their version of Walmart. Right, and then turn around in the car and go back and I'd bring them a, a microwave that they would use on their gener with their generator was on in a goat-haired tent. huh I mean it was great. I loved the two sides of the coin right it was and there's chickens running around and someone asks you if you want chicken for dinner and there she was running around one in the morning and there she is with a fork in her at night right
3: that's it's amazing reality. yeah I
2: loved it. I, I really and I still do. I'll be going back in May. So it just it's just there's something really centering and calming about the place. So that's cool. Yeah.
0: This is gonna be kind of a, a very open ended question, but with such a such an extensive background, as we talked about in our introduction, you're an expert in geological and environmental sciences, stone and architectural restoration. How how does one get started, even like the first step towards obtaining all these things that you've now uh, seemingly mastered?
2: Oh, that's, that's interesting. I think um, having parents who are kind of comfortable had a big deal, had a huge effect, because I wanted to study art, art history, and rocks, but I also liked maps and cartography, and you know, you're in school and your parents are kind of hoping you're going to graduate within a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, wait a minute, you know, I really do see a career that kind of involves all of those. Now, early on, right out of college with a degree in geology and a secondary degree in art history, I ended up going and studying at gem schools in Los Angeles and London. Because gemology is just sort of the fancy art side of geology. You know the study of gemstones so but that was it when i was finished with my gems and my geology and my climate and my architecture and art all of it came together it's like i know exactly what i want to do and it's not that weird what was weird is how few people had the same vision as i did i thought oh this would be this is a cool field you get to study stone buildings and art and even statuary You know, you get to look at stone work. And then I realized, oh, my God, no, this is really kind of an odd field to pursue. The nice thing is working in a university, um, you have students that you can guide into those paths as well. Right. And if they have those kind of odd kind of interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary needs in art history, rocks, architecture, all of that stuff, this is the best place to be it's a perfect it's a perfect field so and over the years having been teaching now for 30 years as well i have a number of students that have followed that same path so i I just love it i can't imagine doing something else
1: (laughs) when you go to jordan how long do you stay
2: um oh that's a great question you i always need at least a couple of weeks just to get anything done By the time you fly in and rent a car or whatever you need. Um, But again, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I stayed for three years. And then I'd go back and stay for easily a couple months. And then kind of the least amount of time I would stay for the longest time was the summer. Right. So I'd go for two or three months at a time. The problem is it's one of the worst times of the year to visit southern Jordan. Right. It's very hot. It's very dry. It's very dusty. So you know it's that's when you don't visit the big tourist season in petra is typically spring or the fall because the temperatures are lower so but yeah it it depends on what i have to do i have very specific um tasks this summer and i'll be working in wadi rum which is which is right next to petra it's the site where all the the planet movies are filmed the martian dune star wars Yeah, yeah, and that's very close to Petra. So I'll be working there specifically this summer because it's very closely related to what I do anyway.
3: Okay.
1: So
2: and they're not they're not very far away. People always think, oh, you work on Mars. I go, <laughs> oh, I guess I guess I do work on Mars, right? I guess I I really do. I'm expecting to see so. And the funny thing is, I've had students say, oh my God, that looks just like Mars. And then you realize you do see people on film sets when you're there working around in spacesuits. Oh. Right, because they're fil- they're filming for sure. a film or a clip or, I don't know. A couple of years ago, I saw some people in like Land Rovers doing some filming that was supposed to be another planet. And on the same afternoon, we saw some woman in a gown on a mountaintop filming for Chanel. <laughs> it's in the same place. You go, this is just so bizarre. And so I guess Chanel advertises on Mars just as much. Right. It's just one <laughs> of those <laughs> it's just one of those things. It's like okay, right? But they really are otherworldly places. I mean, nothing really quite looks like Petra, and nothing really looks like Wadi Rum, and they're close to each other. It's a cup It's 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 a drive within an hour easily between the two sites. So,
0: um, with you studying, with having that background, um, can you tell us about some of the royal jewels that you've studied?
2: Oh my God. Um, (laughs) sure. I didn't expect, I didn't see that coming, Trey. That's great. So what happens is I studied both at the GI, at the Gem Institute of America in, when it used to be in Santa Monica, it's no longer there. It's now in Carlsbad. But I also studied with the Gem A, which is the Gemological Association of Great Britain in London. Mm -hmm. And so the fun thing about doing work in London is you often are called in. Um, because you're, you're kind of in the higher ranking of the gem world, right? In the U.S., being a gemologist, very often many gemologists work either in, in gemstone sales, wholesaling and stuff, or in jewelry stores. But in the U.K. and in parts of the U.S. as well, it's a service industry like an attorney. And so you get called in to see all kinds of stuff. And so, both in London, San Francisco, LA, um, I've been involved with a number of cases where something old pops up and no one knows who it belonged to. And you get to research the provenance and find out it was part of the royal, uh, part of a, a crown jewel estate that was sold off. We forget a lot of times, especially in the UK, that a lot of the jewels of the family either not the crown jewels that are owned by the crown directly, but those that are owned by individual family members are bought and sold all the time. Oh, really? And so you forget that a lot of these pieces that have incredible provenance um, belonging to one of the royals or to you know, a lord or uh, an important family show up in a bank vault or at an auction. Christie's and Sotheby's or one of these great sites. And so that's always a treat. Um, Not only to figure out where the piece came from, but then also to be involved with handling the estate or and that's happened to me consistently, regularly, Um, even in Arkansas. It's happened a couple of times where things have been brought to my attention from banks that turned out to have incredible international history.
3: Right. Oh, cool. And it's Mm
2: -hmm. it's so exciting. It's just too bad sometimes like attorneys is we don't always talk about our clients. Right. And where the piece is or where it ended up and sure you know what's going on but but you know that's the fun part i guess Uh, and and of course everybody does the same thing regardless of gender or 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 everybody has to try it on so i remember in our office in our office everybody was taking pictures of you know, of wearing one of Victoria's important pearl neckla- necklaces. I mean, the pearl, the main pearl in the piece is, this, is a natural pearl, not a cultured pearl, probably from the Arabian Gulf, you know, someplace over there, the Persian Gulf. And it was, you know, almost the size of a walnut. Wow. And so, you know, you we all react the same way. Oh, my God, that's that piece is a wow piece. And I remember having, I worked with a, a woman who was my sidekick in the auction business. I remember the first thing she thought of wasn't, wow, but boy, that must have hurt the oyster really badly. That was a hell of a <laughs> chunk of rock in the and I remember I love that whole idea. We're all going, Oh my god, this pearl is huge. And it's now and we had to get it x-rayed by a dentist to make sure that it was a natural pearl. Right? And so, you know, we had to, we ran it to a dentist across town and said, you know, can you x-ray this for us we're in san francisco to go goes, "Sure, why why it's a necklace and we told him and then we brought it back and then i thought that was the best reaction all of us are in awe because it's a beautiful piece of metalwork, right it's it's got pearls all over it and gemstones and this big big old honking pearl hanging down and then you know the assistant the other gemologist in the department looked at me and she goes wow that must have hurt like a son of a gun that poor oyster that had to hold this <laughs> chunk of rock in its (laughs) mouth all those years. So I think that's the one that kind of grabs my memory. We've seen a lot of, actually, the other thing I think is less the piece, but the kind of piece, is in our business, there's nothing more exciting than having someone hand you a very fancy, oddly shaped, large leather box, especially when it has an odd shape to it with a hinge on one side and a fancy clasp. And very often the leather is dyed burgundy or forest green. And it's a very, you know, and these are boxes bigger than your head kind of things, because you know, when you see that box and you open it, it probably contains a perure, right? A full suite of something, including a tiara, and earrings, or eardrops, and a necklace, and maybe a couple bracelets, and and, and. it's called a parure if it has the tiara, and if it has everything else but a crown or a tiara, then it's a demi parure okay. so to find this leather box, knowing you're going to open it and see something inside, and it's typically a match suite, so it could be diamonds, it could be sapphires, it could be citrines. One we saw that was spectacular, we, as best as we could figure out, was probably Persian and was this magnificent piece of diamonds, yellow, gold, and turquoise. And the finest blue with the most beautiful gold color you could imagine in this full suite with two bracelets, a necklace, earrings, the whole thing. No crown on that one. Right. 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 So, Demi. Yeah. So, is it pure? Yeah. So, the Say the word again. Parure. P-A-R-U-R-E. Okay. And so that's the thing with the tiara. And then the demi is the one without. Okay, so, cool. And tiaras is a hard, it's a hard sale these days, right? You know, you need a certain market to sell a crown or, or a tiara. So, Right. <laughs> but for us, when we see those, we get excited because, you know, it should be in a collection or, and there are people i I'm assuming that still you know you go to grand events or galas at an opera house in one of the major cities and sure enough there's some old gal there with a wearing a full pereur
1: I mean if right. I had one I'd be happy to wear one around the house even but
2: i i mean a great idea <laughs> idea
3: why
1: not? But you
2: don't want to <laughs> yeah but emily you don't want to split up the parure. so if you're going to wear the crown you got to wear the bracelets and the eardrops and the neck the whole thing go big or go home that's exactly right that's right oh my god
0: so archer i hope you're listening to this because i hope that your valentine's present to emily is um a parure of whatever her favorite gemstone is
3: that's
2: right i love Sweet. it Yep. Yeah. pick a color now emily
1: <laughs> pick do a color now. now.
2: Do sure, do it. One? What's your birth month?
1: October. So opal would be my birthstone.
2: Yeah, that's a hard one because it's fragile, but yeah. it's still spectacular. Then go straight for the Tiffany demi-pereurs. Tiffany did a lot of work with enamelling and, and opals. Okay. Yeah, what? yeah.
1: He said like maybe he
2: said,
1: <laughs> Maybe I can find one on Amazon.
2: <laughs> go That's it. That's it. We can get you a plastic one on Etsy. Sure. <laughs> I like it. No one huh. will know. Just make them stand three feet away.
1: Right. Is a black opal a natural stone?
2: Oh, yeah. Definitely. Okay. We kind of we kind of break opals into a couple categories. But no, black opal is the most durable and I think the most stunning from a distance. Yeah. Right. Some opals kind of bleach out in the light. The, the craziest opals that we don't see very often and we handled a large one years ago are called crystal opals. Oh. And it looks like a piece of white clear glass, colorless glass, until the light hits it and all the opal colors are in a transparent piece of rock. Wow. And they're spectacular. They're, it's, I mean, we joke that it's the Arkenstone from the Tolkien books, right? It's that... a big rock of transparent clear glass and it sparkles like nothing else. They're spectacular, but they're soft. It's a tough. It's a tough one. We found. A, we handled a large ring years ago that was a beautiful um, Art Nouveau piece, turn of the century. That was spectacular, and it was faceted. Ooh. So from a distance, oh. it looked like a big giant diamond, and then up mm-hmm. close, the whole thing glittered in all the different colors.
1: Okay, I that's maybe something I should aspire to have at one point.
2: Crystal, oh, you can find them; they're they're around because it's, it's not a big part of the market, like white oh. opals or boulder opals or black opals.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, good to know. Thank you. Sure. Okay, listening audience, my birthday is October twentieth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got six, seven, eight months to build a crystal yeah. opal parure for you. There we go. <laughs> I like it. So
0: I will handle the uh, the perure box itself. If our listening audience can handle the other collection pieces, I will just please ship to i I'm kidding.
1: Yeah, we need a proper leather box with a hinge that is dyed a gem tone, right? <laughs> like, oh, excellent. With a fancy clasp.
2: I, but Trey, I'd hate to even think what it would cost to have a perure box made now. Well, I bet it's a lost, it's a dying art. I bet it would cost thousands of dollars to get one ba- made just to fit a suite.
1: But we know a leather worker. We do. Ooh. We do.
2: Yeah. It's. And, and... Sorry, go I ahead. Love it. And, and you know a germologist, right? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Pieces are falling into place. That's it. Oh,
0: and we know someone who can actually craft these into some uh, beautiful jewelry pieces if we asked her nicely enough.
3: Oh, right.
1: We do. <laughs> we do. Okay, so, um, yeah, I think this is coming together nicely. Thank you, Tom. <laughs>
3: sure.
0: Uh, Arthur, you're not gonna you're not gonna be broke. Uh, you're just gonna have to eat Chef Boyardee for quite a while. <laughs>
1: lots of ramen. Ah, <laughs> uh, so funny. Um gosh, there was a question about that too. Oh, okay. So Trey, what's your birthstone?
0: Oh, uh the pearl. I'm born in June. So Oh, pearl. okay.
2: All right. Well, pearls all I June is also ruby, I think. Is it really? Yeah, and most most months have two stones. I did not and know this. So- some don't, but I think Ruby.
1: Cause is saying yes. July is Ruby, and so okay, is
2: Sandra. What... Um, so someone moon... can check for me. No, Amethyst is February. February. Yeah, it's June is pearls,
0: Pearl, Alexandrite, and Moonstone.
2: That's that's it. Ooh, Thank Moonstone. You. That's it. Also a little soft, but your Alexandrites are tough. There you go, Trey. A little expensive, but you know that's a. That's a great one. We always, we always look at the durability of stones, right? Especially okay. for something you wear all the time. And so that always worries us when, you know, years and years ago, we had a client come in with a very, very important, significant emerald ring. And it was in two pieces. The gemstone was cracked right down the middle. Oh. And she had worn it skiing. And she hadn't, she hadn't hit it at all. But she Hmm. fell into a snowbank and the cold, the shock in the cold, the temperature just split her stone in half. Well, that wouldn't happen to a lot of gemstones, but a lot of gemstones would. And so, you know, we're always we're we're always warning people. That's a great idea for a wedding ring. Wedding gemstone. That's a bad idea. That's a good one. And that's something like pearls and moonstones would be really fragile for an everyday ring. But an alexandrite would be fantastic. Okay. So that's what we're always looking at, you know, recommending to clients. That's a good idea. That's a bad idea. And that's why we have a number of gemstones that are specific to um, all of the birth months.
1: Okay. Kaz said her wedding wedding ring is amethyst. Is amethyst a...
2: It's a quartz. So it's... Amethyst is tough, but it'll abrade a little bit. It will... Because... Quartz is the most common mineral material on Earth, and most of our dust is made up of silicas like quartzes. It will slightly abrade every time you polish it or rub your finger across it. But amethyst can always be repolished; it's great. And if you and there are some purples of amethyst that you don't see in nature in any other, you just don't see in any other stone. That deep, rich purple is gorgeous. Now, the thing to important, especially for people listening is that amethyst though bleach in the sun. So it's, it's really a bad stone to wear in bright sunlight. When we look at old amethyst pieces, like um, some of the Napoleonic pieces, you'll Mm -hmm. rarely ever see them in a dark purple because it's so old. They've been in and out of vaults and, you know, leather cases over the years and they slowly bleach. Wow. So Hmm. it's just, it's one of those gemstones that makes us sad that you knew at one point it was magnificent and now it's kind of purple pink. Okay. So, yeah, and we, then we, that's why we often advise a lot of jewelers that, you know, they're trained as, they're, they're artists and goldsmiths. They're not gemologists. And so we're called in a lot when someone has an important stone. We recently had a client call us about a very large yellow diamond. And the jeweler was worried that the yellow would burn away if they torched it in a setting. Oh, right. And so, no, it was. We could say, no, that's. Don't worry about that. That's okay. Yellow diamonds, pink diamonds, they hold their color. But some gems, we do have to worry about things like that. So yeah. So Trey, don't go for the pearl earrings. <laughs> go for the amethyst ring, right? Don't, yeah. because they they just wear out.
0: Dang it! Ruin my dreams, but I appreciate. <laughs> uh, I appreciate it.
2: I I agree. Yeah, I got rid of my pearl drops a long time ago. <laughs> they're, just, they're just they're just they're just fragile, right? Right. Go for the tough stuff like rubies and sapphires, and you'll have them forever.
3: Okay.
0: I think it's kind of interesting that we're on this topic, and um, I've never actually been a diamond fan. Like I've always been a fan of doing something. Um, a little against the green. It's not that I don't like diamonds, um, but uh, my dad actually got my mom this in- gorgeous engagement ring with um, some emeralds set in it, and then he put like little teeny tiny diamonds around it to kind of emphasize the emeralds. And I always thought that that was like really gorgeous. Um, and then he bought her, I think, like a topaz um, topaz necklace at some point. Um, so I've always had just been really fascinated with alternative choices towards jewelry. So don't go for the diamonds, peeps. Always ask. Uh, always ask what they like.
2: I I agree. My wife wears a sapphire, and I I think I've just always loved rich blues. I know Emily mentioned something about Tanzanites. There's nothing. Yeah. Somebody. There's nothing that color. The only color. The only thing I've ever seen that looks as as that purple blue that you get with tanzanites very rare sapphires you will see having that blue purple but nothing other than that is really a tanzanite that rich sort of dark royal periwinkle color Mm -hmm. and i think that's why i i go to color you know the whole the whole business of gemology is about that spectacular splash of color that nature made and humans kind of enhanced with faceting
1: right my, so, my everyday earrings are tanzanite, the ones I'm wearing right now. I almost never take them out except to clean them once in a while. And um, I never thought about the, the durability of the stone in wearing them every day. It never even occurred to me until just now today. And um, so now I'm thinking maybe should I second guess myself or would a tanzanite ring hold up even?
2: Tanzanites hold up well. They don't shatter but they'll slowly abrade over time they're not the hardest of gemstones but it's a it's it's a great ring now the other option emily that is beautiful but they're hard to find are called sugar loaves and it's when the gemstone is faceted on the bottom but rounded on the top
1: oh interesting
2: and tanzanite sugar loaves are to die for oh they're incredible because you look into it like the sea It's you're not getting the sparkle to your eye. You're just getting the rich blue color. And so you just feel like you could just get sucked into that depth of blue, purple and all that stuff. But earrings are different because we tend not to beat them up too much.
0: Engagement Mm -hmm. rings,
2: you know, that's what we tell people, you know, stay away from the emeralds unless it has a good guard or skirt around it of diamonds or something. Um, Emeralds are real sensitive to changes in temperature. Rubies and sapphires last forever like that. Same thing with many of the garnets. And garnets come in every color but blue. People Mm. don't realize that when we think of a garnet, Mm. we think of that dark kind of inky wine color.
3: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm. But
2: there, oh my God, there are spectacular orange and yellow garnets and beautiful greens. One of the most expensive gems is probably a very fine bright green garnet called a demantoid. Hmm. And they literally look like a cross between an emerald and a diamond. Wow. They're spectacular. And so we—they were common. Not common's not the right word. They were popular with the czar family in Russia a hundred years ago. They—they they used a lot of diamantoids, but they're spectacular because they sparkle like a diamond. But it's the brightest. I've had—I've heard people say it looks like the most beautiful faceted old Seven Up bottle you remember that old thick green glass yeah and and there they can easily outpace in price some of the diamonds but nothing beats the price nowadays of colored diamonds blues pinks red diamonds are still the most valuable of the gemstones and some pinks get pretty close but there's blue blues are also beautiful i mean there's colored diamonds are incredible
1: I've seen like something called a salt and pepper diamond, too, that made me think, oh, these are just occlusions that are now trendy. Is that true?
2: Yep, that's it. Well, and uh, some of the lesser quality diamonds are these, you know, diamonds are rated on a scale from colorless to a bright yellow, Okay. to a, a kind of a yucky yellow. When they get darker than that yucky yellow, then they become fancy yellow and they're valuable again. But if they tend towards a gray or a brown, they... They drop in value, but it's brilliant now that some diamonds are being marketed as coffee diamonds yeah. or smoky diamonds, mm-hmm. right? Inky diamonds. And those are actually low quality stones, right? They're not as valuable as the others, but, but when they're matched in a set, you know, when you have a bunch of coffee color diamonds that aren't valuable, but they're cut beautifully and they're matched in a set, they're spectacular. Sure. Right. They, they mm-hmm. really have a, a, a place. But no, I love it when they're sold with cute names. We have to give a good name. Yeah. We joke, and, you know, in San Francisco, we need to call them fog diamonds. Oh, sure. you know, that it, Right. That are kind of inky and gray. And yes, they're the San Francisco fog diamonds. The and misty then you have a whole new marketing. Diamond. Right. <laughs> That's it. Exactly right. Exactly. So.
1: See- oh, go ahead, Trey.
2: Um
0: see, this was just a ruse to get you to talk about gemstones cuz we're really just um we're really just trying to build up our jewelry collection.
1: Right. <laughs> our per, per- I-, I can't say the word. <laughs> <laughs> our perut. Per- <laughs> what is wrong per- with roar. you? That's, it. That's it. Thank you. Our perurs. Perfect. Perfect. Multiple uh multiple per closets. That's what we need
2: i love it and you know there's (laughs) someone with you know there's someone with kids named peror anyway oh right
1: didn't think of that
2: oh absolutely
1: so what i have a a strange question and if you can't if you can't quite answer it i understand because it feels like it would be really involved to me but what if someone were to bring you a stone and say hey can you look at this for me? I don't know what it is. I inherited it. It came out of like a safety deposit box or whatever. And it's just like a green stone. How do you, there's obviously, I'm assuming a process and also your expertise, but uh, what, when you look at it, do you go, oh yeah, that's obviously a whatever. But like to someone else like me, it, it could be a emerald, it could be a citrine, it could be a topaz, it could be a you know because so many like just like you said um the re- the one redstone isn't always red it's orange and yellow S- just like sapphires can be different shades so w- there's there's a lot of overlap how do you know the difference between a topaz and a sapphire
2: no this is this is great i always tell people if you go to visit someone and you're having them look at gems if there's no microscope around turn around and leave because we always need our microscopes. We always do. And so we can eyeball something and say it looks like this, but let me find out. We have a lot of toys in the business and a gem lab looks like a doctor's, like a clinical laboratory for medicine. I mean, we've got refractometers and dichroscopes and spectroscopes. We've got all these things, right? It's one thing you said, Emily, that is making me grin is that when I worked for Butterfield and Butterfield, the large auction house that became Bonhams in San Francisco, they had auction houses all over. Every Monday morning, we had our antique roadshow before there was an antique roadshow. Okay, cool. So in the, in the 80s, before it was a thing, every Monday morning, I would people would line up with their stuff and they'd be assigned to a different specialist in the house. There's the the Persian carpet guy and the wine guy and the American painting guy and the furniture guy. And then, of course, I was the director then of Gems and Jewelry, and I'd get... So you have to like deal with this all day long for that whole Monday. And sometime it's so exciting because someone comes in with something junky, and you have to tell them that. And that it had incredible sentimental value, and someone comes in with something awful that they wore as a child, and it turns out to be a hand-signed, very rare Tiffany piece. And so, yeah. but we need our equipment, we need our toys to verify. The nice thing is, if it's a beautifully made piece of jewelry, typically you indi- it indicates that the piece, the gems in it, are also of the same quality. But that's not always the case because the hardest thing for us to tell clients is that things like rubies and sapphires have been synthesized for more than 100 years since the 1880s 1890s
3: Mm.
2: so people come in and say this can't be a synthetic because it's been in our family for generations and you have to say you know i'm sorry but they've been synthesizing this stuff for that long and it's a lovely piece right i'm sure it holds fantastic sentimental value but it might sell at auction for a couple hundred dollars, right? Now, that being said, the opposite happens every so often. Someone brings in a toy, some piece of junky stuff that they grew up wearing, and it turns out to be very important. So we had, I had a kind of a biker chick come into my office once in black leather, the whole thing with the motorcycle helmet, and she pulled a box of jewelry out for me to look at it, and she was wearing a piece on her hand that looked nice all of the stuff in her box was okay was not very nice a lot of it was mixed metals and gold plated things like that but the piece on her ring looked on her hand looked nice so i asked her if i could take a look at it don't forget about the ring on your finger and she goes oh my god that's my taco ring i said taco like like burrito taco? She goes, yeah, it's my taco ring. I've had it. And my great aunt gave it to me when I was a little kid, and I've worn it all my life. I never took it off. So I said, okay, now you've got me. Why is it called a taco ring? She goes, it says taco inside. She took the ring off, and I cleaned it as best as I could on the spot, looped it, pulled it down the microscope. The blue stone in the middle was a very significant sapphire, probably mm-hmm. eight to nine carats with a skirt of diamonds at least a quarter or half carat each all around. So it was so big and so fancy, it totally looked like costume jewelry. Wow. Well, we I cleaned it up, took a look at it, turned it un, underneath the scope, scrubbed it as best as I could. The sapphire was real, the diamonds were real. Because when you, a microscope tells us amazing stuff that other techniques don't always. And it was a taco ring because it's a taco inside. But the taco was capital T, ampersand, C, and O. And it was an old Tiffany piece. Tiffany Tiffany used to stamp their pieces, T, right, ampersand, C, and O. It was a very important Tiffany piece from the 1920s. So we advised her. We asked her if she wanted us to help her or what she was going to do with it. She called me up months later, and she said they decided to sell it. She was in New York. She brought it to a main a large auction house and it sold at auction for one fifty-seven a hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Wow. Then right. So I I'll never forget the taco ring.
1: It's an ever, expensive ever. taco ring.
2: <laughs> that's it. And she never and she never thanked us. Right. She never said thank you. Nothing. Right? But that's all right. You know, that's exciting. I got to see this ring. We cleaned it up and I mean, we found a little piece of history on a biker's hand. and She wore it under her glove when she rode them mo- all these years. Wow. She ro- wore that ring and didn't take it off. Huh. And it was her taco ring. So I'm sure she bought a lot of motorcycles after, after that thing was sold. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Do you, do you, Um, I guess it's not really a gemstone, but do people bring you things like I guess it might be considered that. What about abalone?
2: Oh, that's interesting. We see a lot of it, especially because I grew up in Northern California. Yeah. So we see a lot. And, you know, when it comes from the Pacific, they call it Paola shells. Right. It's the same thing. The Paola shells that we see in Hawaii and parts oh. of the Pacific are, is also abalone. Um, I'm a terrible one to talk to about that because I grew up with somebody ha- always having a bucket of abalone shells in their garage right that you use for ashtrays at the barbecue outside or hung on your fence so you know in northern california abalone hunting is restricted Mm -hmm. but everybody oh and but abalone washes up on shores yeah so i we always have boxes of it in the house but it's commonly used and i think it's underrated though because it's so beautiful right it's spectacular so yeah, but it's funny you mentioned that because I grew up in the land of abalone, right? right. Eating it the shells all over, right? Right. One so, man's yeah, it's,
1: trash it's... is another man's treasure, I guess.
2: Exactly.
1: Do you is there a difference between an abalone pearl and
2: like any other pearl? Oh, oh my god. Emily, I'm impressed. <laughs> abalone pearls are very rare. And every so often you'll see some of the really important of the rarer pearls, the abalone pearls tend to be a pink color. A sil- Sometimes they're silver, sometimes they're pink. They're very rare. They're very hard to find. So yeah, and those are natural. Per- abalones are not cultured. So in a cultured pearl, they put the seed in under the mantle, the lip of the mollusk, right? And so cultured pearls are increasingly common, and they come in different colors, and they can be dyed. But if you can prove that you have a natural undyed abalone pearl. There's still a, that's a serious gem. And we're trained. We have to be trained in all of, even the organic things. Okay. Like jet, you know, jet, pearl, coral, all that kind of stuff.
1: What is jet?
2: Oh Oh, God. Jet is fancy polished coal.
1: Oh, (laughs) fancy coal.
2: (laughs) Yes. It looks like black onyx. Okay. But it, but it burns in a fireplace. Right. Um, it was a popular it was a popular jewelry material during the mourning period of Victoria when Albert died. So they use it as make as a it's super easy. It's very it's not soft, but it's not very durable. And so it looks like black onyx and they would facet it to look like thick black diamonds, but they're opaque. And it was used in a lot of jewelry to show, you know, kind of respect at the time following albert's death okay because victoria right was in victoria could um wear diamonds and she found diamonds to be (laughs) absolutely um acceptable suitable in mourning regardless of the size but most people couldn't afford those giant diamonds that she could um and so a lot of people wore jet in jewelry just to show their respect for the mourning of the queen interesting yeah is it is it's probably
1: cold. rare now, huh?
2: Um, I don't. I can't imagine if anyone is faceting it. There there are so many faceters now, right, in the U.S. everywhere. There's probably people faceting it, but I can't imagine there's much of a demand for polished anthracite coal. Right. It's a <laughs> that's a weird one, right?
1: Yeah, I've one never them, seen that it that I know of.
2: Right. Well, and you wonder what the symbology would be. There's got to be a joke in there someplace. Oh, I just got married and my husband gave me a piece of jet.
1: Are you, that's what you I'm get not, in your stocking when you're not so good that year.
2: Exactly right. So what does it mean? She's she's hot. She's volatile. She's <laughs> subterranean. And now she's I'm on, on fire. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. That's it. Exactly right. So, or if you press it enough, maybe you will get, that's it. He's going to tell her to just keep sitting on it until it does become a diamond. <laughs> That's it.
0: So Maybe what he's trying to it. say is she's going to be under pressure with it.
2: That's good. Yes. I love the ruse. <laughs> what a lovely jet. But no, you see jet jewelry. The problem is the jet jewelry became a type of black glass called box hall. So in the UK, oh. especially, you see a lot of jewelry made out of black glass. And that was popular. In it. But boxhall jewelry is still popular now because it's still period stuff. Right. So we're looking at stuff from the 1860s, 1870s. So it still holds value just because it's not valuable material, but um, historically it's important.
0: What is the oldest piece of jewelry that was still intact that you've been able to, to take a look at?
1: Oh, good question.
2: Um, intact. I've seen a medieval cross that contained a piece of wood inside, right? That was attributed to one of the tons of wood of the cross, right? So that was there, I mean, it had been appraised um, as a a very, very high period medieval piece. I wanna say it was 1250. Um, And it was a big old cross on a handmade chain, all out of silver with a big chunk of wood in the middle. And it was flawless. It should have been in a museum. It was such a beautiful piece of medieval medieval jewelry. Wow. Um, but one of the finest full sets I saw was a demi-pereur that was early Georgian, 1810. Now it would be 200 years old. And the piece mm-hmm. was flawless, intact, had never been worn. And it was this beautiful sort of Roman laurel leaf design with turquoise and gold Hmm. and it was two bracelets two sets of earrings and a large necklace and that was spectacular only because you wonder how does a piece 200 years old last that long with frail leaves and everything was embossed and engraved and it was spectacular and the turquoise was as fine as anything you had ever seen but also matched We see a lot of gems by themselves that are beautiful. But when you get a suite of jewelry where there might be 30, 40, 50 pieces identical and matched in color and shape and all that, that makes it even more um, interesting and valuable. And I remember that piece of jewelry in the fancy leather box, right, when you open that box and out comes this spectacular laurel wreath, right, everything. That's pretty exciting. And then you realize, oh, my God, how many people have come and gone in the 200, now 210 years since that piece was first made? Right.
1: Well, and if it was never worn, it makes you wonder, like, why why not?
2: (laughs) I know. I mean, exactly. I mean, and it was so we when you get pieces that when you find pieces made out of a lot of gold before 1830 and 1850, the gold Mm -hmm. is always really light because gold doesn't become really abundant until it's found in North Georgia in the 1830s and then found in California in the 1850s. So gold before gold is really discovered in California is rare. It's hard to get a lot of it. So to find a necklace made 40 years before the discovery of gold in California out of only out of gold. And a lot of it is really unusual. Very, very unusual. So right away, it tells you this was for a very important person, if not a Royal. Okay. And it was not American made. It was a European piece, probably Italian. And then where's the turquoise come from? The turquoise could have been Persian. Hmm. So Hmm. all of this matched turquoise comes to Italy somehow for a suite to be made. I mean, that's crazy. It's a lot of traveling, it did. Absolutely.
0: If you were to make your own perure for your wife, or even for yourself, you know, you may like to wear jewelry. <laughs> you never know. Um, you never know. Um, either if it were to be, like, custom-made, completely made for you, or for your wife, or you had to choose a set from history, what would you go with, and how would how would you describe
2: it? is price an object. We're
0: talking we're talking hypotheticals absolutely. Oh.
2: Abso- okay. I love that. Um I would probably make a parure with a suite of sapphires and tanzanites that were kind of monochrome like all blues but passing mm-hmm. along the pieces of jewelry from light blue to dark blue to blue purple. Ooh, okay. To give it like a chromatic trend to it, we we used to see that during Grand Period, Victorian stuff, and then we don't see it too much anymore. Now they go with the rainbow stuff, or they go with all the same color. But every so often, you'll see a piece intentionally made with a very slight change in tone, but still mm. monotone, like all blue or all green. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me, and that's oh. <coughs> that's always um i think the rarity that someone took the time to match the stones not changing color but having a a tonal change from the beginning to the end
1: like a gradient exactly yeah a toast to capones <laughs> <A> to- <laughs> He, Kap- uh, Kaponis was our moderator for a long time and, and passed away last year. And so every now and then we'll do a toast to Caponis And we might as well, since we're all thirsty right now anyway.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that. I think I'll steal that one of these days anyway in the classroom and have my students toast to Caponis.
1: Oh my gosh, that's amazing.
2: <laughs> it sounds like it should be a toast to Caponis.
1: I yeah. love that. that. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Well, he was an important person to our history, so I think that fits.
1: Yep, to Caponis. To Caponis. So is yes. um, sorry, Trey. Please go. No,
0: go. You started before I did. Go for it.
1: <laughs> well, I was going to say what? What part of what? I mean, because you do a lot. You you ha- have consulting. You do. You teach. You you do a lot. What? I don't want to say what's your favorite, but what is the, what is the thing that gets you the most excited? What's the phone call that you want to answer?
2: Wow. Um, they, for the jewelry question, the gem thing, they found a box unmarked in an unknown safety deposit box in a big city.
1: Just a mystery.
2: Oh, yeah. That's like a shoe box. And it's jangling and they send a photograph and all you see in the photograph is a lot of glitter, metal, color. I think that would be the best. And you have no idea how they don't know how it got there. They don't know the provenance. They don't know anything about it. That's the most exciting because then I also love the research. Right. Let's start digging around and trying to figure out who this belonged to and who made it and this is where hallmarks you know we love our hallmarks because the hallmarks are you know allow us to kind of trace sometimes the history and the path you know how did this thing get to here that's always so exciting to me i think that would be yeah that gets me excited you know what trey when we write our
1: screenplay we need to write it about this and then we'll have it star tom so that when it actually gets filmed, it can be like him living out his dream, but it'll just be for a movie. But at least you'll get to do that.
0: <laughs> and then we I'm... could like, then we could film part of it in Jordan and make it like he's on Mars, and then have Chanel <laughs> being filming their, uh, their their commercial
2: background. Oh my god, I love this! I'm in. This is this is my tribe.
3: <laughs>
2: Yay! Okay, so
1: that was for gems. What about any other phone calls?
2: Oh my God! Um um, I got one this year that was pretty close, yeah, where a major television network called me up and said, "Would you like to oversee an expedition to Jordan?
1: Ooh, yeah,
2: Ooh. yeah, and that's what we're doing in May, okay, cool. I didn't know and if I could was... ask
1: about that or not.
2: Well, and that was, I didn't, it had been years, and I didn't think, because I had, you know, thrown my hat in the ring, and I thought, no, they don't want someone with gray hair. You know, they want, I don't know, DiCaprio or something to do this stuff. And and they said, no, we want real scientists. We want guys that, you know, do this stuff. And so I put a team together and wrote up a proposal and sent it back, and they said, we're good this is it and so there's a team of about four of us going to the middle east to do some work to look for stuff and to measure things and to study things and it's like it's a dream come true that kind of work yeah you know because because then and then you also know that how would you say this spiritually they trust you as well right it's like oh my god they they actually they're out we're actually going to do this and they have no more questions to ask right you know I don't have to you know sign over a house or I mean they literally <laughs> said here's here's the money this is what we want you to do and I get to do it and we'll be living in tents, goat-haired tents in the middle of the desert with off-road vehicles and you know doing all the work so yeah that, that was a surprise this year um, but I hope you know there's more of those life is filled with those yeah. wonderful phone calls and you never emails. know right i know
0: we are proud supporters of black fay day
1: black fay day is a celebration to increase positive representation of black people in fantasy it is observed the second saturday in may every year
0: so this year it'll be on may 13th
1: and like last year to celebrate there's an official black fay day fairy tale gala
0: the theme this year is fantastic. It's Royals, and it's after my own heart.
1: We are so excited. The gala is being held in a real castle in Rockwall, Texas, called the Castle at Rockwall.
0: In early celebration of the third annual Black Faye Day, we invite you to the fairy Tale Gala on April 30th.
1: This will be a full-scale royal affair, where you are celebrated as the majesty you are, in your very own castle overlooking 10 acres of land.
0: Enjoy a private pre-dinner party with the Royal Court.
1: Dine and dance in luxury.
0: Delight yourself with live entertainment, opulent photo ops, and magical merchants.
1: Collect the finest wares with raffles, bags of treasure, and one-of-a-kind keepsakes.
0: Learn more about Black Day and get your tickets at Um, I know.
1: Archer in the chat asked if you and Indy will find the Holy Grail.
2: How does he know we already didn't find it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's interesting is you said that, but the look on your face didn't change at all, (laughs) which means it must be true.
2: (laughs) Well, and the funny thing about that is coming from a science background, in terms of gems and rocks and sandstone and architecture when i look at that i go i don't know if indy would even know if he found it or not that's possible right you know yeah. what i mean because the tra- the training in the fields is so radically different that when i work in jordan when pieces are uncovered i i mean i'm not archaeologist so i don't dig but when people pieces are unearthed, the first thing they do is they call me in right? If they know I'm working there that, that that month or whatever. And so, you know, we're all experts in different areas. And in archaeology, right, you're looking at context and you're looking at materials, but you cannot be the architectural specialist and you cannot be the mortar guy and you cannot be the rock and the gem guy. So I love it when I'm in Petra that I get a call and someone says, Tom, you know, when you're done for the day, come by this site because we found something here that we think are really important roman period granulated gold and amethyst earrings and it's like oh i'm there right now right (laughs) and everything everything in petra takes an hour to walk anyway but it's just so exciting to me when i get those calls no but i'm joking because maybe indy if he found it wouldn't know what he had right if he hadn't studied it if if that wasn't his expertise right yeah so where my expertise is so different so right indy indy would ask me what i know and i would ask him what he knew right and that's right but in the movies he's an expert on everything and that always makes us giggle
1: i sh- right. i was going to ask if you
2: watch movies like that
1: and just like shake your
2: head oh i love them all right you know i mean you gotta love that stuff because right it's like i remember when the movie volcano premiered um with the volcano that erupted in downtown l.a And it premiered, I was living, I was teaching at the University of Hawaii when it premiered, and I worked with all the Volcano guys. And we got to see the premiere in in the theater with all the Volcano guys. They let us see it ourselves. And I was totally entertained, but they laughed the whole time, like it was a Marx (laughs) Brothers film. So sitting in a movie, sitting in the movie, listening to all of these volcanologists watching this film... With Anne Heche and
1: yeah, um, oh, are you looking it up? Yes,
2: yes, I can totally see him on the. I know which
1: movie you're talking about, but I
2: exactly, and the lava bursts out of the ground on Wilshire Boulevard. (laughs) And listening to twenty or thirty volcanologists in the theater, right, wetting themselves, they were laughing so hard. (laughs) Made the movie even funnier, made it funnier even to me, right? And Anne Hayes is the volcanologist, and she says things that are utter, utterly ridiculous in the movie, but that <laughs> makes it even more fun, right? That's so. Yeah, those are and the gemstone movies for me. Oh my God, they make me crazy. You know, I want twenty-eight million dollars in in loose diamonds. No one in the world would ever throw a bunch of diamonds together in a bag <laughs> at all. It's not like a diamond can car- can cut another diamond or scratch it. So you just had 28, di- $28 million of uncut diamonds, throw them in the bag, and now you have $14 million of scratch diamonds, <laughs> Right. <laughs> so that always makes me laugh. No, when diamonds are traded, they're in very specific little papers, right? Each one is folded in its own paper. They're meant not to scratch and touch each other. But I love it in movies they're in a attaché case loose, rumbling right. around inside.
3: Yeah.
1: Bouncing around.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, no, no, we do that all the time? <laughs> it's great.
1: Did you find the movie?
0: I did. Um I I've never actually seen this movie. Uh, it was starring Tommy Lee Jones, Anne Hisch, uh Gabby Hoffman, Don Cheadle, and Keith David.
2: Yes, was it? Was it in the late '90s?
0: It was in the late '90s, uh, 1997.
2: Yes. yes, I remember sitting in the theater, and it was, you know, it was more fun sitting. If I had to see it with regular people, you know, a regular audience, you'd sit there and just roll your eyes. But sitting with a whole number of, of volcanologists who are just screaming in hysterics because it was just so badly done and you know lava when it when it when lava ejects squirts mm-hmm. out of the top of a volcano and flies. this is rock flying through the air mm-hmm. right and so in the movie when it lands on the ground it looks like styrofoam bouncing right it, i mean if you got hit with one of those chunks of rock you would it would hurt and in the movie it, it looks like paper mache So it's even funnier that they're kind of putting their hands over their head, but they're being showered by tennis ball rocks.
1: Because it would be like thud, 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 and it's not. Oh, and you would, you
2: would die. One of them would crush your head. So, (laughs) right? It's great.
1: Yeah, because it's raining rocks. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh no!
2: And umbrellas don't help.
0: (laughs) Let's let's just bring out the weather girls. Let's just change the song from "It's Raining Men."
2: (laughs) It's raining rocks.
1: Uh, I didn't ever thought about it like that It makes me want to go back and see it It's been a million years But we'd probably laugh for more reasons Than just those thi- those factual oh. Mistakes than Because it's from the 90s <laughs> Well
2: what you do is Emily I'll watch it with you And every time someone should die But does not we'll, we'll We can take a tequila shot <laughs> <laughs> Right
1: how, he how many dead. minutes he do you sh- think will make it?
2: Oh, my God. He should be dead. Drink up. <laughs> right? <laughs> so alcohol poisoning will <laughs> <laughs>
1: happen. That's great. That's great.
2: Well, the next week... Well, it's less traumatic a- uh- than a rock in your head.
3: <laughs> right.
1: It's... <laughs> We'll be dying happy. I think next week on the podcast, we'll do that. We'll just have a live stream where we all watch the movie and then our audience can participate too. <laughs> this will be great. <laughs> Portray. <laughs> his head is in his hands. <laughs> Yeah, Kaz and Archer both say they're in. So, I think this is a grand idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Wait, time for me to go buy some tequila, okay?
2: Maybe we should fly to where it's made. Oh. You could re- then you could you could record live at a an agave, right? A tequila factory. Oh,
0: okay, yeah. And we samples <laughs> get samples come out and we just
2: yeah i like that
1: because <laughs> said it said, better be patron <laughs> yeah
2: good taste cause that's great uh
0: archer said now we're talking um one question that i do have especially with like uh, the archaeological digs or whenever you're looking at uh, preservation especially in a country that is not natural to your own do you ever run in, into any opposition or into any um, just less than welcoming, um, just less than welcoming gazes? And how do you overcome those obstacles?
2: Wow. Um, it It's much less, I think, the country than the politics at the time. So there's been a lot of times in America's history when traveling abroad was not a great idea especially in the Middle East, then I would definitely get looks from people, especially Jordan being adjacent to Iraq, mm-hmm. right? When that, when that mess was kind of ongoing, that made it complicated for me. And so people would always ask me then, especially those who knew me, what I thought about the political situation. And that doesn't help either, Right. Because either way, either answer is complicated. That has been an issue over the years. But people that know me, and and I like to attribute a lot of it to science, right? It's easier being objective, and this is what I do. Plus, in Jordan especially, and I've worked in Morocco, Tunisia, Jordan, Turkey. There's something wonderful about pulling the science card. And that I'm here to work with you, your government and your professors that makes it easy because then it's it's like you know science is objective and that makes it easier if i was over there surveying people and i was a political analyst or a journalist i think that'd be complicated yeah but when when they call when they think in jordan they used to call me abu Hajar, which is the father of rocks like a rock doctor Mm -hmm. and that was great that was fantastic because it made people realize, oh, that's right, he's a rock guy. Then the next day they'd ask me if I had gold or, or silver in my backpack. right? So right away then, oh, okay, he does rocks. I get that. If it was politics, it'd be complicated. But it was, uh, yeah, it, it could have been bad, but it, it never went there. Um, Morocco was a surprise. I was brought into Morocco, specifically by the kingdom, to interview people 20 years after, a dis- 20 years, 40 years after a disastrous earthquake that mm-hmm. hit in the 1960s. So I was there 2003 to 2006, and they brought me in, and I had to talk to people. I had to find survivors of that earthquake. I thought that was going to be difficult, and it turned out to be wonderful, because I was invited to people's homes. I was taken to cafes because everybody I was trying to meet was at least 50 years old. So the old guys would pull me aside and, you know, give me food. That surprised me because that was much easier than I thought it would be. In Jordan, when I'm in Petra, because I've worked there for so long, they know who I am. They've met my daughter. They know my wife. You know, they know the whole family. And that's easy when I go to Jordan, because then the problem is trying to figure out when you're going to get work done. Because when the sun goes down, you're in someone's house eating with their family. Right. And so Jordan's become a second home to me over the years, whether it be in Amman or down in Wadi Musa or Petra. So, but yeah, increasingly it's, I don't know. And, you know, with age comes that ease with kind of fitting in. Mm -hmm. it makes it easy also over the years having studied arabic years ago um and then moving moving to jordan and realizing they speak a very different form of arabic so when i'm in jordan the words that i can use are very specific to that place right Mm -hmm. and so that Mm -hmm. makes me fit in better better and it makes them sort of more comfortable with dealing with me so
0: what's your uh what is your favorite word to say in arabic
2: <laughs> oh wow. Pretty 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 word or meaning word?
0: Uh, like, dealer's choice.
2: Um one of the words I love that's used in a funny way in Jordan is Hadabon. And bond means inoperable. Ooh. And so it it so like a radio that is intact but doesn't work is Hadabon. It doesn't mean destroyed, it just doesn't mean it doesn't work. And so They'll use it in a way like um, I've had students with me and they'll say, is his head inoperable? <laughs> right? like his, so they'll say, um, Ras Harban, does he have like a, a non-working head? I love the use of the word because it doesn't work quite the same in English. Right. Is his brain not functioning? It doesn't have the same punchline, punchline to it. So yeah, and, and I always laugh when someone talks about haban, or if I use if I use the word. Um, but some of the words are beautiful. I I find over the years lecturing on Petra that what Americans think Arabic sounds like is often Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So when people mimic Arabic to me, they're often mimicking Hebrew and not Arabic. Mm. Because I, I don't think we hear enough Arabic, especially when it's spoken well, beautifully, to really be able to mimic it. But Arabic, when it's spoken like a TV broadcaster, a news broadcaster speaks Arabic, it's a lovely language. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Arabic, when it's spoken right, has all of these word endings that match. So when it's spoken correctly, it flows because all of these endings of words are sort of poetic. Oh, mm-hmm. So it's easy to make Arabic sound lovely, right? And then what, what I love is all the different nicknames they will give you, right? And so for years, they would call me Thameen. My friends would call me Thameen. It translates loosely to valuable, but it's not valuable like a gem. It's valuable in terms of representing a resource, And I would ask people, I said, how did I get this name? And I realized people would invite me into their homes and I'd end up fixing a light switch (laughs) or, or (laughs) re-gluing and clamp, clamping a chair, like doing carpentry. And and I realized, okay, that makes total sense because they very often see Americans as kind of useless, not very handy. And when you live in the desert, you have to be good at everything from repairing your car to, you know, building wood furniture and cooking. I mean, it's amazing how many men are as as, um, incredible cooks as their wives. And of course, to me, that's also very Italian because I come from an Italian family where all the men cook as much as the women do. So I was really pleased over the years to realize when they called me Thabine, it was indicating a sort of resource I represented, right? And so, and that's a common thing. Like I have a nickname that, right, is kind of endearing and sweet like that. Yeah. So, right. So like Emily has intense bright eyes and they'd probably give you a nickname. They'd probably give you a nickname. Like, so when the word Abu is used for a man or Um is used for a woman, it translates literally to man or woman. But when it's used in context, like um, Abu Hajjaj for me, it translates literally to the father of rocks, but it loosely means of all of those rocks,
3: okay.
2: right? Like, hmm. like Mr. Rock, okay. like if someone's called Abu Muskelji, it's actually a Turkish word used in Arabic. But if someone was called like I could look at triangle, I uh, Abu Muskelji is he's the father of trouble but it implies that he at that point represents a troublemaker right oh. and so so someone could look at emily and look at her eyes or oh better emily your smile they'd see this smile of like big white teeth and they'd call you um sin the mother of teeth the mother of like white pretty teeth and that would be a compliment to you okay that would be a compliment that they're saying that you know that it's it's this part of you that is lovely and nice and
3: Okay. Right. Yeah.
2: That
0: he's does known us for nice. an what? He's known us for an hour and a half and already he's picked up on so many wonderful traits about us. <laughs> 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 I mean I honestly it. It, it it honestly that's kind of incredible and it I think it speaks to like a really rich culture. And it's something that like we give people nicknames for like that's just based on their name. And meanwhile, they're giving nicknames based on like um, features about them or based on their personality or based on how uh, resourceful they are for things. So that's, honestly, that's really cool. I didn't know that.
2: I had a student work with me for years in Jordan, and they always called him Abu Aziz. And that was like the father of all things nice. Oh, he was this he was this generous, kind. He was brilliant, but he was really generous with his time and money. And he always carried pockets of coins to give to the little kids for helping us do things. And right away, they just thought this guy was just so generous. And that was his nickname. Abu Aziz.
1: Yeah, you don't get to pick your own nickname.
2: So, yeah. And you don't. Yeah. You don't. Now, if 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 you have a child, if the firstborn is male, then you become Abu or Um of that kid. Right. Okay. But my first child, my our only child is a daughter. And so I make sure I tell them that I am, uh, my daughter's name is Sam, but I tell them her name is, I am Abu Samia. And they're confused because that makes me the father of a daughter. Right. But I do it on purpose to make sure they get used to the idea that you don't have to have a son to be named after that child. Okay. Right. So, yeah. So the people that know me will send emails to me as Abu Samia, the father of Sam. But, right. So your mom, Emily, is Um Emily. Interesting. And your dad is Abu. Abu M.
1: I can't wait to tell him that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well and they use it in the Aladdin movies, right? Because that's Apu is the yeah. monkey. So they're kind of using the same idea, Apu and Abu. And in Turkish it's Atta. Atta is father. So they're all kinda close. Okay. Yeah.
1: Kaz said I'd be the mother of Hades.
2: <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> um, um, I I should know what what hell is in Arabic. But at least for now, she'd be definitely um, um Hades.
1: Um Hades.
2: Um Hades. It has a nice sound to it. Um Hades.
1: It does. We'll get you that t shirt, Kaz. <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> Tom, do you have a t shirt that says the Rock Father on it? Because I think you need that shirt.
2: Um, I have one that's close and it says something like Rock Dad Beard Dad Hero. <laughs> It's like something, you know, the same idea. But I I have so many shirts in Arabic, but I've always thought of having one that says Abu Just The weird thing is one of the royal family members in Jordan, I don't think he knows my real name. And every so often I run into him when I'm in Jordan. Mm -hmm. And he'll go up and he'll go, yeah, Abu Hajar. It's like, oh, my God, I don't think he knows my real name. He just (laughs) knows this name that's been floating around for 30 years. But that's great. And he uses it as an endearment, as a term of endearment, because it it wouldn't be your real name. But it's like, I don't think he knows who I am. Right. For real. Right. Or if he sees me on TV, he goes, oh, my God, look, look, honey, it's Abu Hajar on TV. I know him. (laughs) I don't think so.
1: The rock father. (laughs) I Yeah, I just thought it would be like look like the godfather poster but then it would be you and then rocks
2: oh oh that i never thought of the rock father now you guys can also be called um or abu after some food you like a lot so so like trey could be abu donut
0: (laughs) you know (laughs) I i do
2: and they'll use that as a joke name if you're at a dinner with somebody and you're like not eating your meal, but you're eating one thing. And I'd say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, Trey. Uh, Mr. Abu Donut. And you'll hear that used as a joke in a family. You know, like you're not eating your vegetables. Someone would say, okay. Right. So. The- well, this, is, this is a great direction, ab- though. This ab- is fantastic. Taco. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. For Trey? Abu taco. I love that. <laughs> well, I think that's better. It's better than something like, um, chicharrones or something, right? Look, mm. Abu chicharrones. Yeah. No, no, Abu taco is nice and short and sweet.
0: Well, uh, speaking of tacos, um, I do want to point out that tomorrow is Valentine's day and it also happens to align with taco Tuesdays. So, um, <laughs> So please, uh, wherever you are, if, you're, if you don't have a meal yet planned, please go make some tacos. Uh, <laughs> and happy Valentine's Day from the Modern Romantic Podcast.
1: And you can call your date Abu Taco. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a male, though, right? Has, that's Correct. A, yeah.
2: That's it. Um Taco is great. Um Taco. Abu taco. And you could force it into a female state as Takia. Um, oh. takia. It's like that's like making the taco feminine.
1: Okay, gotcha.
2: Takia in Arabic. That's pretty, though. Actually, you could name your daughter that. Takia. Um, ta-kia. Little taco. Well, She's... it's like taquito. Yeah, yeah right. In, in Spanish. In She's... Spanish, it's the same idea.
1: She's spicy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Tom, he we've kind of talked about um your work with petra a little bit um but what some of our viewers may not know is that you have a very highly rated pbs special um and you know knowing that your pbs special is one of those highest rated of all times do you ever get goosebumps when people bring it up or when you go back and watch it
2: um i do especially because so I've done Smithsonian, Discovery Channel, Nat Geo, all these different ones, and they all took a month or so to do. Mm -hmm. That one special with Nova took almost a year um, because we did extensive filming in Petra, and then we actually carved that whole tomb in the hills above Santa Barbara. And so every weekend of my life for a couple of months, I had to fly out to the site in Santa Barbara to oversee the carving. So we used Roman tools to carve that tomb, and no one had seen that procedure done for 2,000 years. So at the time we were filming it, I was terrified because we're carving a building out of solid rock and one bad chisel slam could take down the whole facade so i think we were so worried about making this perfect structure on film time lapse over months and months and months as a part of that tv special i didn't even think of it at the time until it was being edited and put together and all of that stuff and then we went wow this is really spectacular and it was done through two different production companies, one in Providence, Rhode Island, and one in L.A. And that editing team did the most fantastic job. At the time, no, but then once it put together, we realized, wow, we really have something special. And then all of a sudden, the awards come out. All of a sudden, it hits the airways. Um, it premiered to almost, I think, 40 million viewers internationally. Wow. And that was only the beginning that was, and it's been on a number of times since. So all I can do is, you know, say I was doing what I love, but they were doing what they were so good at. Right. And so, and we're in the hills above Santa Barbara that we're an hour from anywhere with a film crew, with tools and devices. I've got a laptop because I'm trying to convert the 3D in the laptop to the 3D facade to all of this building. So what Nova did in putting that together was, you know, was, was amazing. And so I still get calls all the time when it premieres again, when it it shows again on PBS. So, and a couple of other series since have been pretty exciting because Smithsonian took the track of research we had done on a great flood that destroyed Petra in the fifth century. So they took it in a different direction, and then we did Discovery and Nat Geo that was kind of a historic, kind of an overview, but that Nova will always, I'll always go back um, and smile. The other thing, too, is I have to say I was much more active with directing in that, right, with the cartography, overseeing facts, text and script, all of that I was much more involved with, so that makes it even more exciting, I think. But those, the two directors that were involved and their teams and the editing was superlative.
1: Is the site above Santa Barbara still there?
2: It is. It's on private land. A very influential TV producer owns a couple thousand acres up there. Okay. We couldn't find a place to do the carving. We thought we could do it in Jordan, and it was too complicated with administration. Right. You can just paperwork and stuff. And then we thought we could do it in the U.S. Then we realized you can't do a national park. We can't do it in a state park. So we looked at Indian council lands, reservations, also complicated because the Indian councils, right, make it complicated. So we almost gave up. And I was at a meeting in L.A. trying to figure out what we could do. And I had to look for the geology that matched a little bit. We couldn't get very close because Petro's rocks are more than 500 million years old. And we couldn't find anything in the U.S. that was older than 100 or 120 million that was close. Right. You know, give or take, you know, a couple million years here and there. And then we finally found a rock outcropping, I found, that was close in everything but age. But we didn't know how to get a permit because it was all private land. And one of the guys said, wait a minute. I know a TV producer that has a a huge amount of land up there. And we literally called him up. I didn't know who he was at first. He turned out to be a heavy hitter and a name you and I would know. And he said, it's yours here. Here's a ranger. Go and drive around the property and look for it. We found the property on his land with a view. If you watch the series, if you watch that Nova, Mm-hmm. You'll see Catalina Island in the distance. Mm-hmm. And once you know it's in the hills above Santa Barbara, it makes sense. But it's in the middle of private land. So what he's doing with it, we don't know. And we ended up doing more to the, to the tomb than you see on TV. We did a lot more to it. Um, and so he's got this amazing Nabataean tomb thing with steps and a staircase and on his property. It's crazy. That's pretty cool. Well, yeah. part of
1: the reason I asked is because I have family in Santa Barbara, and I just got back from there. <laughs> and uh-huh. I wonder if I could see it from the from where they live or something. But
2: well, the problem not. is it faces uphill. Oh, okay. It faces away from the sea. But yeah, yeah. No, no We can <laughs> we can talk, Emily. There okay. might be some way to figure something out. Ooh. But no, it was pretty exciting, and the best thing is he is so incredibly well off that's not even the right word you know you know what i mean that kind of mega money sure that we had an assistant with a little four-wheel drive that every day he would drive into town and get us whatever we wanted for lunch oh that's cool not not from a menu just just whatever whatever you you feel like oh yeah and this kid was like 18 or 20 and he'd go down the hill and bring back one of the directors loves love milkshakes and the kid would go down the hill and come back with a bunch of milkshakes. Now, we're in Santa Barbara, so for me it's like I want I want the Mexican food. Yeah. I want the the local latino yummy yummy things with horchata and all that stuff. So every day he'd bring me up the hill all the best thing in the world from you can imagine. You know, fresh seafood tacos with horchata ice cream and you know, that a little Tonya Labonia made for you, you know, down the hill. It was fantastic, but you know that's the advantage of working for for that kind of power. Sure. So it was great.
1: That makes me want to go back and uh, eat more of their food. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was that's one thing they we had lunch on the wharf at one point. And there was a restaurant there. We got seafood tacos overlooking the ocean and. Um, you know I'd done that a few times so to me it wasn't quite the big deal that it was to my aunt and uncle who were there for the first time uh, last week so it was kind of a neat experience for them and I really enjoyed the tacos and I thought boy I wish I had a place like that in Minnesota where I am right now
2: (laughs) now I'm just going to have to go back (laughs) that's it well when you you get used to and I grew up on the water. When you get used to fresh seafood too, nothing matches either. Right. That's right, yeah. It is.
1: Kaz said, um, I want I'd want clams.
2: <laughs> oh. Clams are good. Oh my god.
3: I've never
1: actually in had olive
2: clams. oil. Oh, in pasta? Pasta con bongole with lemon? Oh, it's oh. the bomb. Right? Good choice, Kaz.
1: Well, you'll have to come out there with
2: me, Trey.
0: Oh, Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have I'll to call meet, on. I'll,
2: I'll meet you. Cool. Ooh. I'll I'll translate California for you.
0: <laughs> um, in terms of um, in terms of like inspirations, because you've talked about how you have you studied art history, you've uh, clearly know quite a bit about gems, geology, um, jewelry crafting. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, And then you made a very specific reference to Tolkien earlier. I do have to ask, what are some of your inspirations in your day-to-day life?
2: Oh, wow. That's a really... I've never been asked that question. Um, I would probably say art and nature. Right? What, What you and I... And art at different scales. Nature's art at different scales. Something tiny, like under a microscope. theres You cannot believe how beautiful inclusions are in gemstones of other minerals. Like in a sapphire, you might find a zircon or something. That scale of beauty, right, we see at all different scales. And I think it is Mm -hmm. the scales of nature's art, I think is probably what, right? What really gets me going that I don't think of directly until I've seen it. Right? Now, that's a mm. tough one. I don't think I've ever been asked that trade. And students ask us everything. You know? <laughs> right? So no, that's really interesting. Huh? I don't know, I guess also having worked in a large auction house for years, I'm always impressed and intrigued on how artists, especially painters, can express a thought or a dream or an Mm. idea with paint. A blob of oil, a mineral pigment, you know, ground up rocks mixed with some kind of oil and smeared on a piece of canvas with a brush or their finger. And all of a sudden you realize you're seeing something that represents a thought or a feeling something that's evoked a dream and that always impresses me because I can't do that and really get excited when I see someone who can, who may, I think that, especially when I, when I know how paints are made mm-hmm. right with vehicles and pigments and I realize that was a rock and he added linseed oil or something, and smeared it on a piece of fabric and made the most beautiful expression for a person, or the most glowing eyes, or the most, you know, it's that's a pretty amazing, I think, a really an amazing thing. Right.
0: There are there are a few things for me that kind of capture the sentiment that you're going for and or that you that you've been describing. And the one that keeps coming back to me, if people want to ask me. How? Why should I care about art? What is beautiful about art? Um, or I don't. I don't understand what is beautiful about this thing that's just been created. Um, the song that comes to my mind is from Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George, and it's at the end of the Act One finale, where the painting that he's been working on for the entire act is finally displayed before the audience. And the lyrics that they're talking about are the blending of these colors together. And you see as slowly over the progression of the song that this whole piece comes together. And it's talking about the beauty and the wonder that he has seen throughout all of these Sundays on Le Grand Chat, finally coming to fruition on stage in front of the audience um, for the beauty that it is. And it is one of the most stunningly captured and well-orchestrated pieces of music. I think that really encapsulate it. So if you really want a good cry, and for me, I need a good cry on a Tuesday at six o'clock, pretty much regularly. <laughs> um, I highly recommend um,
2: that piece. Excellent. I, I remember in the auction houses being taught about different artists. You know by the specialists and I uh, the word I heard over and over and over again was provoke Yes, mm-hmm. was that good art should provoke and that good and bad it should make you angry it should make you remember happiness it should force you to recall joy or sadness but art has a purpose and that is to tap into something that you have felt Mm -hmm. that you might not be able to feel again, but someone is able to share their feeling with you. And I never forgot that. And not provocative in in an annoying way, right? He's being provocative, but provocative in this idea that, right, it triggers something good and bad in all of us. And every so often I'll look at a piece of art and it's like, I'm not really sure if I like it or not, but boy, it really does provoke something happiness. Right. it should force you right. to recall and it did joy. joy or sadness. It, it, but art has taught been. me something about that artist, or taught me something over about myself. Over and over again was right. provoke. So hmm. heard I heard hmm. over and over and over again like was that. provoke.
0: Very well said.
2: Hmm. Yes. Was that I, you know? I'd go in and I look at something look. and I'd go, "Wow, that's a pretty weird looking painting." What the hell is that? And that was the time when. You know, you, you we're all in, especially in the auction business, it's his own little world. You know, you see the Jesus with feces and you see all these different art forms. And I'd say, I just don't get it. Will that really sell at auction? And the guys are laughing. Oh, you bet it's going to sell at auction. <laughs> well, who would buy that? Well, it's provocative. It's It triggers something in all of us, whether you like it or not, but it did. And the artist did his job by creating something that expresses. And I think what's exciting is when the expressive nature of the artist is different than what you are provoked by. Right? That's something that's not the intent of the artist, but definitely works with you. That something deep inside has been triggered. In a Mm -hmm. good way or a bad way or like smells will do that. Mm -hmm. You know, some people have smells that there are certain smells that, you know, trigger all kinds of things. And those can be good smells, bad smells, evocative smells, childhood, all these things. Romantic, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, art plays that similar role.
1: Mm -hmm. For sure.
2: Well, and think about all of our senses are triggered by that. Right. When you mm-hmm. think about it, music does that taste does that. How many things we taste that bring back memories that are awful and wonderful. I remember being forced to eat that or I remember eating that on a, you know, a, some sort of celebration, even feeling things, you know. So I think all of our senses should be our best when they are triggered to bring about another sort of provoked thought, memory, expression, something in all of us. Years ago, I was able to take one of Ansel Adams' last classes in Yosemite Valley. And, you know, his black and white photographs. And my dad, Mm -hmm. I grew up in a dark room, and, and I still shoot with a Roloflex. I still like doing black and white. But I remember asking him what motivated him and what do you see that you like? And he says, I think he said, I'll never forget, that one of the most amazing things is to see something unusual at the time and photographing it and hoping after you've developed it that then it does its magic. Not just at the time where you're photographing it, but when it's done and then looking back at your image and going, wow, I didn't even think of that at the time. I didn't see that symbology. I didn't see the meaning. And that always got me excited. Uh, my daughter does some serious photography, and we all do in this house. And and, and there is something really magical there, right? That you take a, p- a picture, and then years later or months later, you look at it, and you go, oh, not that you didn't see that, but you didn't see into that, right? And I think life is like that, too, right? I think there's something wonderful about studying our memories and going, wow, at the time, I missed the whole point, Right? Yeah. And now, right? You know, exactly. what's that great saying, you know, when you look back on your life, it isn't it isn't how hard things were, but how easily you sailed through it. Right? And I think it's one of those things. It's like, wow, at the time I didn't I knew I had to take that photograph, but only now am I realizing why. Right. Right
1: yeah and if you want um if you want a really cool reality check on that take your art or your photograph or whatever sculpture whatever you do and take it to someone like an art teacher and ask them what they see (laughs) i i say that because i did that once by accident (laughs) (laughs) and they pulled things out of there that like you said i hadn't considered i never saw it there were angles and things that i didn't when i was taking that picture did not occur to me but that person saw it cuz they that's their eye is different than mine you know and the final product right. is different than what i was seeing in the moment and that was kind of cool. And it opened my eyes to see it differently. Just like when you were describing how paint is made from minerals, which are rocks mixed with oil and slapped on some slathered on some fabric. And I thought, huh, I will never see paintings different. or I will never see paintings the same now because they're all and I'm looking over my monitor at, <laughs> at a painting over there. I'm like, now this is. This is rock hanging on my wall in yeah. a different form. And I'll, I'll, that's really a cool perspective.
2: When you see those, the old ultramarine blues, that gorgeous blue that you see, especially in medieval paintings. Yeah. I can't see that without under, realizing that that's powdered lapis lazuli. Right. That's And awesome. then that it only came, it only came from one place. It only came then from what is now Afghanistan, parts of Persia, but mostly Afghanistan. So how did that powdered rock get mixed with a, a vehicle and put on a manuscript in France in the 13th century? It's fantastic. So, I mean, I, I that's what gets me excited is when I think of the, pa- the hands passing and rocks and purples and these colors. And, you know, I just, I love that idea. And then when they can convert what I see as rock and powder and a liquid into an expression of someone in pain or in joy or a child playing or a forest. It's like a whole new level to me of magic, right? Taking it to that next level. Yeah. Oh, I love looking at rock pigments and, you know, thinking, and the same thing with pottery, right? Having gone through, right my years as a potter going through school and that's what a glaze is right glazes are inorganic they're rock materials and very specific recipes that under different temperatures fire into different colors right
0: i all i have to say is or actually i have one question um what are you teaching this semester and two do you do these kind of conversations come up in your classes if so i'm going to recommend your classes to more people like this this is your perspective on art is incredible
2: oh this is well it's interesting trey you brought that up because um typically i always teach a class in cartography and visualization and it's based on visual theory and maps happen to be part of the product so we go through color theory we go through fonts and photography but we all we also go through like jungian concepts of seeing right and so what we're talking about is often comes up um in classes like that and then my evening class this semester is a is a mixed law class on american public lands so it's the history and stories of national parks Forest Service. That's a rare class, but I love to teach it because it's just kind of fun. And we address Ansel Adams and John Muir and all these guys. But the class I get to teach in the fall that's always fun, too, is the geology of gems and gem materials. And then we do a whole section on painting and pigments. So we do a whole section on what rocks can we grind up and make pretty colors out of. (laughs) <laughs> right and we do it in class we will try and get enough material that we can grind stuff in class and make paints out of it for them to understand that kind of bridge between gemstones and paint
1: cool do people ask you for advice like how do i how do i be tom paradise <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's great i like that um the i mean i I'm, I'm a i'm a big advocate of books Right. Mm-hmm. I, I don't trust people whose houses don't have bookcases, bookshelves. And so, you know, I that's why I love buying duplicate books and just giving them away to students. I mean, I think it all starts. It starts with the book, because if you read the book and it's not interesting, then don't go in that direction. But if you read the book and this is great stuff and it plants a seed, then keep going. You follow that bliss. So, you know. It's, I don't, I just, I, I'm also not a fan that a lot of American universities don't really support the true nature of interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary classes. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's lacking in our systems and, you know, and so you have to bucket and -hmm. say, okay, I'm studying architectural history, but I need to take a class in rocks and I need to take a class in art history. Or I'm studying geology, I need to take a class in building materials. I mean, and the problem is increasingly that's not possible because you have course paths, right, to get to that degree. Right. And so I think that's part of the problem. It's not having sort of creative paths in American academics, right? I probably would not have been allowed to pursue what I'm doing now 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. It probably wasn't possible you wouldn't be able to get a degree, right? They would tell you to put your head on straight and stick to the goddamn course, right? Do what you're supposed to do. Well, it's like, well, wait a minute. I want to do art history and I want to do rocks and gems, but I want to do Italian literature and okay. Well, they would always do the same thing, stick to one thing and graduate. Right. And so I think that's part of, part of the problem. Right. And thank God, I didn't. Now, as an undergrad, I surprised myself. I did graduate in four years. (laughs) That surprises me. Um, But it's also the way my head works. Now, I could also talk about a mental health issue here because I also think if I was eight, I'd probably be diagnosed with ADD or someplace on the spectrum. When in fact, the schools I went to actually made it an advantage. Because my f- head was all over. I was interested in all these different topics. And so rather than having a teacher say, just focus, paradise. I had teachers that say, let's read up on this stuff. Let's keep going. And then you make the networks yourself. Your brain. And I think all of us have these things. These connective passions, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to connect them ourselves. Yeah. It's very often it, they're not understood by other people, right? And here- so, so I look at kids now, right? That that have all these different passions. I just had a bunch of middle school middle school kids in my office the other day. I had a field trip in my office, <laughs> and they were all asking these brilliant questions about rocks and gems and maps and all this stuff that's on my wall and there's Petra rocks in the corner and all this stuff and every question they asked sat in the middle of a discipline hmm. none of them were like typical of something you would study formally okay. and that's when you realize I think we think like that I think we bridge those ourselves but a lot of times in academics we're forced to focus right you know hmm. write a cogent thesis Right. Rather right. than, you know, I, I think I, I think I figured out how to link these things. So,
1: yeah, here we've been calling it multi-passionate because we see a lot of artists that have multi-passions. And I remember being told when I was I, I did I had a fashion line at one point that showed at Fashion Week. And I remember being told by another designer don't photograph even though I'm also a photographer don't photograph your own stuff don't photograph your own fashions because you don't want it to look that looks bad to to be able to do both both create fashion and photograph it and the reason completely eluded me because I was like why and I also then my self-confidence kind of wavered like maybe I shouldn't um and it took me a long time to get to the a point where i felt like no i'm just gonna do that anyway i can do both and who's who's gonna judge me i don't know but i think there are a lot of artists that are multi-passionate that want to do things like sculpture and painting and 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 that's okay um i'm one of those people i want i'm a do-it-yourselfer i want to do all the things in my very short life And
2: this podcast is one of them. (laughs) I I get it. See, the nice thing about getting old and having gray hair is all of a sudden I am now eccentric and eclectic. Right? So those two words all of a sudden are what people would say. But 30 or 40 years ago, whatever, in elementary school, you'd be unfocused. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? So, yeah. No, no. I... I I just thank God I I had a dad who was an elementary school teacher that was like, okay let's do this. You want a camera? Let's do it. You want a telescope? Let's do it. It was great. And so all of these where I had a telescope as a kid and we had a dark room and I had all that stuff. And so we were out. I remember sitting on the roof with my dad as a kid, taking a photograph of the stars at two in the morning. Because that's I cool. thought the stars and stuff was cool. And my dad said, well, this is photography. And then let's go downstairs and develop it in a dark room. But that's when you need the mentor that gets it. Right? That doesn't think of it as, as something weird. And I've had students that you can tell that uh, we get notes when a student has been diagnosed you know, with some aspect of Asperger's or something. And then I get them in the classroom and it's like, this kid is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And he's focused. He doesn't have any disability at all because someone else read it, right, as an unfocused nature when, in fact, that kid just had too many interests. And they were still trying to figure out how to make that perfect banana bread out of life, you know, just take it in that direction. So and I see this a lot in universities because I get undergrads and grad students right? And so I think, I'm, I, I love letting them follow that passion, those multi passions, right?
0: Having a teacher, I think like you, that, that recognizes that and supports it. It's been shown and it's been well documented that those who've received positive reinforcement for what they sometimes get as like their weirdness ultimately pushes them forward to continue pursuing those passions. So I think it speaks to to how well you are loved. Otherwise you would um, I don't think Sandra would have pushed as much as she would have to have you on our show. Um or it speaks so highly of you. Um and Ooh. I think that also speaks to your reputation and to your very illustrious career. So to Ooh. that, I have to say a very uh, very hearty Uh, applause. Can we get some applause in our chat for Mr. Tom here?
2: (laughs) That's great. Yay!
0: Um, Tom, (laughs) I want to say chatting with you has been utterly delightful. This, I have never learned so much about gems. I've never, I have learned more things about gemstones and about history. (gasps) Oh, Oh! And Doggo! You have a puppy!
2: What is she the dog thing? Up. Penny, the corgi. Oh, hi Penny. She heard hi, you, cor- she heard you clap when you were clapping. She woke up and kind of showed up.
3: Oh.
0: <laughs> Sorry Penny.
1: She has huckleberry oh, she? coloring.
0: Huckle-
2: She's the mayor of the house.
0: <laughs> they always are. <laughs> Um, but Tom, honestly, it is, it has been a delight to have you here. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing your passion and your time with us this evening. Um, do you have any, uh, favorite quotes or, uh, any parting words for our listeners out there?
2: Oh, wow. Um, no, pr- no pressure,
0: <laughs> no pressure. Sorry. No, no,
2: no. I think, I think, I'll, I'll actually use one that I use a lot in the classroom. When I'll ask a student if they tried hard enough, they'll go, oh, no, this is the best that I can do. And I always answer that only the mediocre are always at their best. Hmm. Hmm. Sometimes we don't try hard enough. Look how many artists broke the rules and went beyond what they did best. Right. Right. So, yeah, no, no I've used that a great deal with students. No, come on, you guys, let's think beyond what, you, what is doing your best. And let's try doing something that's weird or uncomfortable or especially with mapping, you know, students use the same colors all the time. Right. And I said, no, let's, let's, let's go for something weird. Let's right. look at a palette from Ann Klein. Right. Let's look at a palette from, right. Let's, let's do something off off the wall and it works. It's great. So, so yeah, once we had students that didn't know how to, they were bored with their colors on a map. And we went to a Liz Claiborne ad, and everything was khaki, magenta, and periwinkle, and they did the map in khaki, periwinkle, soft like dustier tones. It was spectacular. It was spectacular. So yeah, let's let's not let's not have to be conventional or feel like we have to be conventional, right?
0: That is that is brilliant. And if you have uh, if you have pictures saved of those. Um, I would love to see those because that sounds incredible.
2: <laughs> I do. Uh,
0: yes. <clears throat> Thank you everyone. Have a illuminating day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good night, everyone. We love you.
0: Good night. Bye. Bye.